2: taking all these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored
0: welcome to episode number 257 of literary treks i am bruce gibson we welcome you to the official star trek books and comics podcast of the trek fm network and with me with a cold unfortunately dan <laughs> gunther is sick dan i feel so bad for you oh don't worry
1: about it just a cold i'm i am i i Couldn't let it bring me away from from talking about Star Trek books and comics. And especially for today's episode, because I'm really excited about this one. So, you know, wild horses, let alone a little old cold, couldn't drag me away from
0: this. (laughs) I can understand why, because we have author Una McCormick in our feature today. And we're going to talk about the newest Star Trek discovery novel, The Way to the Stars. And this is a character piece about Sylvia Tilly and... She's a favorite character of a lot of people, and this novel does not disappoint. Absolutely, I, yeah, um, I think you'll hear when we're talking to her
1: how much I enjoyed this novel. So I'm really excited to talk to Una about
0: about it for sure. Absolutely, but before we do that, we have several items we want to cover in the news, and we have a comic, and we want to talk through some of the feedback we received in the Babel Conference on Episode 255. So let's get to the first news item, and that is a new Discovery novel has been announced. It's Discovery, The Enterprise War. But the interesting thing about this Star Trek Discovery novel, it's about the Enterprise during this time prior to season two. And this is written by John Jackson Miller. And this book will come out on July 30th of 2019. So this is the fifth discovery novel that we received. The one that we're talking about here in the feature is the fourth. So this is the next one coming in July. Dan, do you feel up to reading the summary of the book? I think I can manage. A shattered ship, a divided crew, trapped in the
1: infernal nightmare of conflict. Hearing of the outbreak of hostilities between the United Federation of Planets and the Klingon Empire, Captain Christopher Pike attempts to bring the USS Enterprise home to join in the fight. But in the hellish nebula known as the Pergamum, the stalwart commander instead finds an epic battle of his own, with not just the Enterprise, but her crew as the spoils of war. Lost and out of contact with Earth for an entire year, Pike and his trusted first officer, number one, struggle to find and reunite the ship's crew, all while science officer Spock confronts a mystery that puts even his exceptional skills to the test, with more than their own survival
0: possibly riding on the outcome. I'm excited about this, but at the same time, I'm like, well, this is just a Christopher Pike novel. We've had (laughs) this before. It's not really discovery. But uh, so we have several of the older Pike novels coming up on future episodes this year here on Literary Tracks, and I was thinking today when I read those, I might just picture Ansem Mount as Pike when I read those novels. And then this is going to fit really well into that flow of Pike novels, because it's yet again, another Pike novel, but written now after discovery Mm -hmm. has been on the air. Yeah, And at the time
1: of this recording, two episodes of season two have aired. So we've gotten to know Anson Mount's Pike a little bit better. And interestingly enough, John Jackson Miller on the Trek BBS has talked a bit about this novel saying like, you know, even for the people out there that don't really like discovery, they can just treat this as a Christopher Pike novel basically it just takes place concurrent with discovery's first season uh during which the klingon war is happening and the enterprise is unable to attend the war i guess basically so uh you know you can treat it as you know this is firmly in the discovery you know milieu and all that stuff or you can just treat it as captain pike and picture jeffrey hunter if you want it apparently works quite well either
0: way you want to read it yeah, I approach every Star Trek novel as a Star mm-hmm. Trek novel. I rarely really pay attention to if it says, ooh, the next generation or Deep Space Nine or whatever. Because, for example, I mean, we've had Deep Space Nine last year that was about Captain Sisko on the USS Robinson. It had nothing to do with the space station. So I, I kind of ignore that. <laughs> I just go into it as, hey, this is going to be a Star Trek story. Yeah, it's Trek in story. that shared universe that we all know and love. <laughs> exactly. So the next thing we have is a cover of a book that was announced previously. And it's a TOS novel written by Christopher L. Bennett. And the novel is called the captain's oath. And it has a picture of Kirk on the cover. I almost wanted to say in the pre TOS uniforms, but also pre TOS uniforms are discovery uniforms, but they don't look like this. So it's, (laughs) you know, the non black collar uniforms the where no man has gone before uniform exactly (laughs) those uniforms or even the cage uniforms something like that but uh this novel is coming out may 28th of 2019 and i like this cover Mm -hmm. there's some object here in the middle some round object that the enterprise is swishing by I'm not quite sure what this is. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Uh, so Christopher L Bennett has
1: said about this novel that it takes place earlier in James T Kirk's career, um, but at a very specific point. So it's while he is the captain of a ship that he commanded before he took command of the enterprise. And I think he said this would be kind of a destroyer type ship, like that size of ship, if you compare it to the enterprise. So, uh, Kind of interesting, a little piece of Kirk's career that we've never seen before. And like you, I really like this cover. I like the composition. Um, It's, you know, lately we've gotten either photoshopped character faces or a ship or something as a cover. And this one actually is a kind of nice arrangement. We've got the character up in the top left corner and this weird alien ship thing or station or whatever this is and the enterprise flying past it in the foreground. I, I really love this cover. I think it's really
0: gorgeous. The fact that this takes place earlier in Kirk's career probably means we might not get the enterprise in this book, even though the enterprise is on the cover or we start off in the enterprise it's a flashback looking earlier in his career. I'm actually excited that it's not during the five-year mission, that it's something earlier on because we don't, necessarily explore that time period with kirk very often and i'm going to think if this takes place sometime around when discovery is taking place i'm going to think well this was happening somewhere else in the galaxy while the discovery was doing other business
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: yeah definitely so we have another cover oh by the way would you put your stamp on
1: this one i would definitely give this one my stamp of approval for sure
0: (laughs) i would too So the other novel that was previously announced uh, that is now coming out in August, August 13th, I think it was supposed to come out, what, in March or February originally? Mm -hmm. Yeah, February or March, somewhere in there. Yeah, The Antares Maelstrom. Uh, That book is an original series book by by Greg Cox. And again, we have a cover with Enterprise, but Enterprise is more front and center and bigger on this cover compared to the cover we just reviewed. And it looks like there's a bunch of some kind of unknown ships heading down towards a planet and the enterprise is either following them or looking to intercept them but i love there's these stars a very orange yellow cloud like vision above the planet uh it's again a beautiful cover mhm yeah i
1: really like the colors and the arrangement on this one as well uh these ships they look kind of like, I don't know if anyone has watched Stargate SG-1 or Atlantis out there, but these kind of look like the Earth uh, USS Daedalus type uh, starships. A little bit. Not not Daedalus class from Star Trek, Daedalus class from Stargate. So I think I'm probably just confusing everyone if you've not seen the cover now. Uh, but yeah, the interesting ships we've never seen before. And this really cool orange cloud uh, that must be, of course, the Antares Maelstrom uh, swirling about and looking quite menacing here.
0: Really cool. Yes, absolutely. So I give it my stamp of approval. Me too, definitely. <laughs> Excellent. Well, the next thing we have in news is we have another comic series announced from IDW. And this, you don't have to wait that long for it. It's coming in April of this year. And it's the... Original series, year five series of comics. So previously IDW a few years ago did a series of comics on year four of TOS. Now we're getting year five, the end of the five-year mission. And I mean, that's great, but we have had other novels and comics that take place in the last year of the five-year mission, but that doesn't deter me from wanting to read
1: more. <laughs> no, definitely. It sounds like IDW is kind of wanting to say this is the definitive what happened in TOS year five. Um, I mean, you know, that's great. But we have so many stories set there that I think year five can be kind of whatever you want it to be at this point. But that said, I, of course, I'm
0: going to be picking these up and reading them because new Star Trek stories. How can you go wrong with that? Yeah. And it sounds like there's a thread that's going through these because writer Jackson Lansing says that the series will be a vital, hard-hitting, character-focused look at Captain Kirk on his last year in command. And that Kirk's actions in the series will have a huge ripple effect from the outbreak of war in the Alpha Quadrant to an unprecedented strain of trust with Spock. will turn a mirror on modern society just as the original series did in the 1960s and boldly towards meaningful, heartfelt story. And writer Colin Kelly, another writer, says, with Year 5, we don't just want to thrill. We want to channel the power of franchise creator Gene Ronberry's original vision to tell a story about the future that illuminates our present. Yeah, this looks pretty cool. I like, uh, I like the idea that
1: it's an ongoing series, not just kind of a one-off event thing. Um, I'm curious how long this series will go. Um, it doesn't sound like it's just a mini series. It sounds like it's going to be kind of an ongoing thing. So um, I'm
0: curious to see where they end up with that. Yeah. This was a story that was covered in the Hollywood reporter and, uh, it sounds like, yeah, right now it's an extended story story storyline. There is no end. So they're saying at least to the Hollywood reporter saying that they feel like the series might run a bit longer than the usual five to six miniseries. So we'll have to see uh, how long this one uh, goes on. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's what we have in the news. And speaking of comics, we have a comic we're going to review and oh my gosh, here we go. Star Trek versus transformers. Number four, you know, this is authentic star Trek. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, if you like TAS, the animated series, and you like Transformers, this is the thing for you. And even if you don't and you like Star Trek and or Transformers... I still think it's something for you. It's a it's a fun read, and we've been covering these as they come out. This is a five-issue series. This is number four, so we're nearing the end. And we pick up where we left off in the last issue, where there's this big battle going on between the different Transformers going at each other, the Decepticons and are the are the evil transformers, and they're fighting a gigantic enterprise. Yes, a gigantic USS Enterprise that has transformed into a Transformer. So picture the Enterprise as a Transformer, and Kirk is inside controlling it. And it's so (laughs) funny to hear this Enterprise Transformer speaking when it's actually Kirk, but then Kirk seems to be falling into the control of Maximus. Mhm.
1: Yeah, it looks like Maximus has these feelings of vengeance and wanting to take revenge and Kirk is kind of having to fight this and maintain his own control and sanity, I guess. Um, you know, in control of what they're calling Fortress Tiberius <laughs> instead of Fortress Maximus here. So, yeah, he's kind of throughout this issue battling that and uh trying to maintain control over this you know, Goliath transformer.
0: I so want this transformer as a toy. I so <laughs> do. If they come out with this, I'm putting money down on it. Cause I so want this. I had the same thought as I was reading. I don't know if I'd get it, but I would love to see it for sure. <laughs> I've never had a transformers toy, but this I would get just so <laughs> I can say I have it. Uh, yeah, pretty awesome. And then McCoy and Spock are on this enterprise ship. <laughs> I guess, trying to get to kirk on the bridge i don't know there's just so much going on with these battles and and the klingons are involved and the decepticons get mad at the klingons and then we have uh another transformer here named and, and remember i'm i'm not into transformers so i don't know hardly anything that i'm talking about but starscream is one of the Decepticons that decides why am I even getting involved in this battle? Everybody's fighting each other. I'll go off and try to take some energy with me and learn about the uh, cloaking device from the Klingons and take out of here. I'm gonna grab some dilithium and I'm gonna go conquer my own world. So, see you guys. And the Decepticons are like, "Wait, where are he? Where's he going? We got to stop him." So the Decepticons all of a sudden want to go after Starscream, and then our heroes are going to go after them because they don't want Starscream and the Sepulchreons to conquer the Klingon empire, even though the Klingons are foes and, but that's okay because we're Starfleet. We always protect life no matter Mm -hmm. if they're our enemy or not.
1: Yeah. There's so the meat of this comment comic basically is the huge fight. And then, yeah, like you said, it kind of wraps up with them, uh, chasing down Starscream And the rest of the Decepticons who are on his tail into the Klingon Empire to prevent them taking it over. And what's kind of cool is we've got, I guess, two Enterprises racing into the Klingon Empire together to to take these guys on. So I think we're going to have a pretty epic battle
0: in the next uh, issue by the looks of it, even more so than what we got in this issue. Yeah, because this other Enterprise was created by these Transformers, and it is a Transformer, but it transforms back into an Enterprise. But this is a little different of an Enterprise. I mean, it looks the same inside and out, but inside things are a little off because when Kirk is sitting in the captain's chair on this, he is proportioned correctly with the chair, but there's a Transformer that was on the bridge, so the bridge is much bigger. So kirk and his chair looks smaller I, I was having a hard time in this issue with the perception of size of things as spock and mccoy are running through the ship mm-hmm. we see the transporter that our crew looks small on it like they're rinky dink and then there's a but like the transporter is huge so to accommodate the transformer but then as our crew runs through the ship, everything looks the same proportion as them again. So to me, it's like, it's probably not an exact duplicate of the enterprise. There are aspects of it that accommodate our Starfleet crew. And then other aspects of it that are big to accommodate the size of the transformers.
1: Yeah. They seemed a little bit more kind of loosey goosey with the, uh, the size this time around, it was a little hard to kind of get my head around it. Even towards the end, like on the bridge, some of the shots, it looks like they're just normal sized on a normal size bridge it's kind of
0: i don't know it's hard to kind of figure out there yeah i thought it was hard to to the point that i went back to issue three to see wait did i misremember something or did i misread something but no i'm just thinking that if you were walking onto this bridge from our perspective it might look like the regular bridge maybe just a little wider but if you looked up the ceiling is like really high up like so Mm -hmm. the proportions i think might all be off i don't know (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm thinking too hard about this. <laughs> that might be the case with regards to this comic, I think for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's a lot of fun, and even though I'm not that familiar with Transformers, uh, you know, it's it's just it's the animated series. You know, it's fun. If the Transformers never existed, I could see this being an episode of the animated series. Yeah, definitely. I could see this being
1: integrated into that world a little, uh, I, it makes sense that they chose the animated series as the setting because it does seem to fit a lot better there for sure.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, this is issue four. So we have one more issue left with number five that will conclude this story as they take off towards Cronus or the Klingon empire. And the enterprise is going to try to save the Klingons from the Decepticons. So there you go. (laughs) Okay. So next, before we get into our feature, let's just go take a quick gander at some of the comments we got in the Babel Conference about episode number 255. And this was the episode that we had Justin Ozer on where we talked about the IKS Gork in book three, Enemy Territory with Keith R.A. DeCandido. So Justin gives us our first comment. Wait a second. Does that qualify? He was on the episode. Hey, yeah, that shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> uh, but we'll I mean, give he it says, to him. <laughs> you yeah, will give it to him. He says, thinking about the Elabridge hammocks made me think of the scene from DS9's episode Explorers. Cisco says, let's take a break. String up the hammock. Hammock time. And Jake says, yo. <laughs> <laughs> yep, there, that is the
1: other reference to hammocks in all of Star Trek good call. yes so hammocks <laughs> are
0: canon for sure
1: um bruce you commented here with uh, actually a tweet from keith de candido in response to the episode and he tweeted a picture of what could be an Ella you know if you remember from the episode they are described as not having heads separate from their bodies and you know they were um these kind of weird creatures with six legs that were also arms and all this stuff And he says that the closest visual of what the Elebrege look like is Chode from the early 2000s animated series Tripping the Rift. And I don't know how many people out there have seen that, but uh, he's this kind of uh, purple blob dude with kind of green dots on him and three eyes in the middle of his body and a big, huge mouth kind of across where the stomach would be. Um, yeah. And, and I hadn't thought of that. I haven't thought of tripping the rift for many years, but that could be kind of something you might have in your mind while you're reading, uh, enemy
0: territory it makes sense. Let me just tell you, I know more about transformers than I know about tripping the rift, which means <laughs> I don't really know anything about tripping the rift. I I've looked it up. Some of the images I know I've seen somewhere before, but I've never watched this show, which Looks like it's saying it's a CGI science fiction comedy show. Yeah. And with, with definitely adult sensibilities
1: <laughs> as well, I would say it's uh it's not a kid's show for sure. Um, I don't remember a lot specific about it, just a lot of kind of sex jokes and that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> well, Keith also tweeted out, uh, about our comments on the cover because on the cover of enemy unseen, it looks like it would be less And we weren't, sure about that and why, if it is Lescott, why was he chosen to be on the cover? And he says, yes, that is Lescott. The answer to why he's on the cover is very prosaic. We had more photo ref of him than anyone else. So he was the easiest to paint. That makes sense. You know, sometimes the
1: simplest answer is the best. (laughs) There's more shots of him having been on
0: television than the other characters. That makes sense. You know, that sounds kind of disappointing in a way, because you'd think the answer would be like, well, the reason Leska is on the cover is because it's a hint to something that's coming up later, or <laughs> his character had a lot of influence on it. No, uh, we just had a lot of pictures of that guy. Yeah. That's all. That's <laughs> it. We just had some pictures we could reference, and we just put them on there, you know, whatever. Don't Don't judge a book by its cover, people. Exactly. Although I do like the cover. I'll give my stamp of approval on this one, too. I do like that
1: cover. That was a really good cover for sure. Um, We also do have another comment by Jeff Lubin, who just says, great episode. Thanks, guys. And uh, we learned kind of through the the comment thread that he hadn't actually read um, the books yet. And he kind of does what I did when I first started listening to Literary Treks. I listened to a lot of the episodes about books that I hadn't read yet, which some people might not like because of spoilers. But, uh, you know... Any way you come to listen to the episode, we really do appreciate it. And if our episodes let you uh, give you some insight into a book that you might not otherwise have picked up and then make you go and read it later, hey,
0: so much the better. We're really happy to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I know some people have told me that they listen to the features and listen to the whole thing, spoilers and all, uh, just to decide if they want to read the book. And if it sounds really good, even though they've now heard the story, they go back and read it, which I totally get. Uh, I, there's some stories I know that I've heard and I know I'm familiar with. And then I still go and read the book. And actually I think it's sometimes more enjoyable that way. Cause you kind of know what's coming. And so you get maybe a little more out of it if you know where it's going. So yeah, definitely. Uh, and the last thing in here is AJ black uh, post a link to his review of the waypoint special number one that we covered earlier in that episode. So if anybody wants to read his review, go to the Babel Conference and click on his link and check that out. So that's really all the comments we have in the Babel Conference for episode 255. But without further ado, let's go into our feature about the latest Star Trek Discovery novel. Oh, man, I'm excited. Well, in today's feature, we're going to talk about a new novel based on Star Trek Discovery. And this is the fourth Discovery novel we have published out there now. And it is called The Way to the Stars. And I think it's pretty safe to say, Dan, that this is probably most people's favorite Discovery character when we talk about sylvia tilly as being the central character of this book <laughs> yeah she's definitely up there
1: it for me it kind of uh depends who's on the screen at the moment either her or saru but whenever they're on the screen they're my favorite
0: <laughs> i'm kind of with you there i'm i'm gonna throw pike in now for this season mm, as one of my favorites yep. too but uh this wonderful novel uh was written by una mccormick who has written other star trek novels and she's joining us today so how are you doing una
2: I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. How are you
1: guys? I'm getting over a cold, but happy to be here. I'm really happy to speak to you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. So how did you get involved in writing a discovery novel? And why Sylvia Tilly?
2: Um, they asked me, I, I got an email saying, uh, dear Una, would you like to do a discovery novel, novel about Sylvia Tilly? And of course I practically bit the hand off the person <laughs> offering it to me. So, uh, so yes, they got in touch with me. I, th- I think I was, I think perhaps they had me earmarked for the Tilly book, uh, which was lovely to, um, lovely to think that. And obviously I, I think as you guys were just saying, for me, she was, absolutely the breakout character of the um of discovery it's just she's just phenomenal isn't she i think when she's on screen you want to be looking at her and uh, uh seeing how she's, seeing what she's doing seeing what she's thinking oh no what's she about to say what's she gonna say next <laughs> what are your favorite aspects about tilly um that there's no not always a filter in place um, and that she, she comes out with what she's saying, um, which is often completely true, but perhaps not the most tactful thing. Um, I think that she, uh, all of us who watch Star Trek perhaps are a little geeky or a little, you know, not, not as social as we'd like to be. And I think she, she captures that, you know, our awkwardness, our shyness, um, Also, I think um, uh, being smart, but uh, not necessarily um, uh, having the social graces uh, to sort of get your point across. She's just a very, very vulnerable and very appealing character uh, and uh, a lot of fun to write.
1: I think one of the uh, comments I remember seeing way back when the novel was first announced, I think it was on Trek B- Trek BBS, somebody said, a Sylvia Tilly novel by Una McCormick is one of those things you don't realize you need in your life until you know it exists. <laughs> I thought that was perfect.
2: <laughs> well, good. I'm very, I'm very glad we were able to supply an unknown need. <laughs> Now, this
0: is the first Discovery novel to be concurrent with the series at this point and actually features Discovery in the book. Uh, so that's something new that uh, we're discovering here with Discovery novels. But uh, we also have a good Goodreads group. And uh, some of our Goodreads members had some comments or questions I would like to bring into the discussion. And this one comes from Arco, and Arco says, "I am curious how the writing process for this novel compared to the writing process for your other novels."
2: Oh well, uh, this was this was a really easy write. Uh, we I had a, a, a lot of access um, uh, to uh, scripts, uh, and I also had um, two fantastic long transatlantic phone calls with, um, Kirsten Bayer. and she and I sort of sat, it was, it was great fun. It must be what it's like being in a writer's room, I think on the show or on a TV show. Uh, we just sort of sat and go, oh, should we do this? And, oh, can you imagine what she'd say at this point? And, oh, there'd be a hat and the hat would have tassels and then, you know, they kind of giggle. Um, so we had two really great sort of story breaking phone calls together and I had a sort of constant, uh, steady stream of scripts coming in, um, of rewrites and revisions and, 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 you know, more rewrites and revisions. Um, so very close to, uh, the writer's room. Uh, but at the same time, I just felt, I felt free to go with it. I felt that they had confidence in me, um, and that, um, they could, they could leave the character in safe hands. And like we were saying, we all really love Tilly and I don't want to mess it up. I want people to feel like they're reading a book about her. And hopefully, hopefully that worked. So um, great writing process. I wrote it very quickly, which is always a good sign that always um, shows me that I'm feeling confident. Um I, I remember we, there were some suggestions for revisions at the end and um, uh, they were going, oh, is, will this be okay? Will this be all right? I was going, "No, oh, yeah, you know, I can get them done in a day or so. And they would curse you, curse you for being such a great writer. But it, it all felt so <laughs> fluid and natural that um, I just had a good time.
1: Excellent. So I'm curious where in the uh the production of the series most of the writing was done. So for example, did you have any access to anything from season 2 or uh the short treks episode specifically Runaway? Did that play any role in writing this novel?
2: I had the script for Runaway, but I I didn't uh, I didn't have any visual material at all. So so it was just scripts that I was getting. I think I was writing sort of during the summer. So uh I, uh, things were just heading into production, I think, as I as I was kind of finishing up. I, d- I didn't see any visual material, um, but but scripts were were readily available. Sort of, um, you know, they were they were generous with that because they want, you know, they they know that we everyone likes things to kind of match up and be consistent, and and part of telling a good story is having that all consistent. So I didn't see Runaway. In fact, I didn't I didn't see that until they finally arrived on netflix in the uk the other night oh
1: man yeah (laughs) yeah yeah.
2: i was like oh yeah that's exactly how i imagined it so um, and obviously um tilly's mother appears in that and we we talked about that character um in conversation with kirsten and in notes and so on um so hadn't seen anything but had had read quite a lot and had, had had sort of worked with people as well I've been wanting to go back and watch that short treks
0: episode. Now that I've read the book to see that scene with her mother, Mm -hmm. uh, because I think it would be interesting to watch that now after reading the book and seeing if my perception of that relationship is different now, because we've, we really dove into that relationship within this book and the book starts off with Burnham and Tilly talking about Tilly's first day coming up with the command training program. And she's very scared, but she, it's not nervous, she mentions. And then we start to launch the story of Tilly being at the age of 16 with her mother. So tell us about that mother-daughter relationship.
2: Well, it's quite strained, isn't it? I think the, the mother is, uh, her mother's very uh, ambitious for her. Uh, her mother is very ambitious and, and is very high achieving. And I think in her daughter, she sees someone with with gifts and talents. Um, but perhaps, you uh, the, uh, she's she's not quite seeing what those what those actual talents are. So she's seeing intelligence and smarts, but she wants Tilly to go down a certain direction. And Tilly really wants to go a different way. But where Tilly is at the start of the book, she can't really articulate that to herself. It it's sort of a joke in a way that she likes these strange old mushrooms. Um, you know, there's, there's not really a way for uh Tilly to articulate that no actually what I'm interested in is Patterns and connections and uh, grand unified theories of science and physics and so on. So Tilly's quite young, and her mother's her mother's very experienced, very knowledgeable, uh, uh, very very clever. Uh, and it, 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 when you've got someone like that in your life, it's quite hard to sort of um, push against them. Uh, it's 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 just difficult to say no. Uh, and and I think that's what Tilly has to learn during the course of the book is to say, actually, no, this isn't what I want to do. It's like Jake, um, Cisco having to say, No, do you know what? I don't want to go into Starfleet. Um, so that that break that children have to make and adolescents have to make where they say, Well, no, I've got to start finding my own way here, even if it means disappointment or displeasure. Are there any
0: aspects of your youth that you put into this book or into the relationship <laughs> or character?
2: Uh I, I, I liked Hilly am a scientific genius that is. Unre- no, 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 nothing like that. Uh, oh, I think you. I, the, the, I think there's lots uh, that you put in. You, you have to speak from emotional truth whenever you're writing anything. So I remember being. Um, I, uh, I remember being at a government school and being the only one interested in science fiction and this kind of thing. So. You remember having interests that other people quite don't get. Uh, I remember going to uh, a sixth form and finding people who liked Doctor Who, and suddenly I'd found my my team, my my fam as uh, they'd say now in Doctor Who. I would found my tribe. So you remember those emotions, and you try to put that in. Of course, now I'm I'm writing this book, and I've got a little girl, uh, so um, I didn't I didn't want Tilly's mother to seem. Uh, Uh, a monster you know it doesn't work that's not that's not a good story people aren't like that Uh, I wanted her mother to feel um, ambitious for Tilly maybe not very good at uh, um, uh, listening to Tilly or or, uh, being so clever that she sees mistakes that Tilly's going to make and so she tries to impose her own will so I don't want people to hate Tilly's mother Um, I want them to sort of uh, understand where she's coming from, and just see that it—you know—sometimes these relationships do break down. That you have to make a break with someone before you can have an adult relationship with them. So, um, yeah, lots of lots of bits of me, um, but into many of the characters, I think.
1: I think in a lot of ways that relationship is something that a lot of people can relate to. I mean, you know, mm. maybe not to the extent sometimes that. the the relationship Tilly has with her mother. But, you know, we all feel alienated from our parents and, you know, sometimes that they want to control. And then as you get older, that relationship flips around. So I think there's a lot here for readers to grab onto and recognize in themselves and the people around them.
2: Good. I'm glad about that. I'm really pleased about that. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So I hope people, I hope it's not as simple as Tilly's mother. Uh, bad Tilly's father good because of course he's he's sort of (laughs) wandered off you know he's he's been off the scene he's sort of um you know they've kind of all agreed that he can go off on this research trip but but really in their hearts I think they all probably knew it it wasn't best for Tilly as as it turns out not to be so um so yeah there's there's complications I hope and yes I hope it's something that people can sort of go yeah, I can remember what it was like to just be annoyed by my parents. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, actually, I just had lunch with my parents and I'm 51 years old and there's still aspects of them that still annoy me.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> Quite right. They're, they're doing their job in that case. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right. But now it's interesting that the show has established, as you were working through the scripts and close closer to the writers, Mm -hmm. That Tilly has this relationship with her mother. And then you wrote that relationship with her father, which seems to be better. But as you said, he's off, you know, in the distance, he's traveling. Mm -hmm. But you decided to start her in the book with her grandparents. So I was just curious why you decided to start at that point with her with a a good, healthy relationship with uh, her grandparents.
2: Yeah, she gets on well with her, her grandmother, doesn't she? I think it's. Uh, uh, I think it's. I think it's probably easier being a grandparent because you can have sort of all the fun of uh, interacting with the child without really the permission or the responsibility of having to be the one that says no or you must do this or you must do that. So I think we they uh, the, the guys back in the writers' room had quite a clear sense of who um, who Tilly's mother was. She's quite a sort of high-ranking uh, Federation diplomat so we imagined that she would probably quite be quite distant a lot of the time that she wouldn't necessarily be there. There'd be other people picking up the childcare and that once um, Tilly's father goes off, then it sort of falls to the grandmother uh, to do a lot of this care. I mean, Tilly's sort of 16. So, you know, she's a, yeah, a lot of that is, is taking care of herself. It's mostly just, you know, making sure she's in the right place at the right time. And, you know, she's doing her homework anyway. She's that kind of kid. so. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting to sort of put up with a the other, the other good thing about having characters like that is that you've got a, a couple of characters that you can sort of have sitting back going, well, if only these two would listen to us. And, you know, they're, they're kind of like a Greek chorus or they're your, the, the, your anchor point as a reader for uh, uh, someone else's perspective on this quite intense relationship. It's a, it's a third and fourth pair of eyes going... Oh, if only if only Tilly could not be so highly strung, if only her mother would just stop and listen and, and these kinds of things. So it's it's a good anchor for the reader to have uh different eyes on this relationship, I think. Also they were good fun. They were good fun. Grandparents are oh, always yes. good fun. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I loved the perspective of um her grandmother's partner and like when, you know, she goes to war basically, he's like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> these these he's women like, in this family. Yeah, I'm, oh just, my. I'm just I'm
2: just going to sit in the next room, maybe with a book, and uh, you know if I, if I hear actual screaming or knives <laughs> being drawn, then, then perhaps I'll intervene or something. But yeah, mostly let me just keep my head down. Yeah, he he was he was a lot of fun to write. So um, and again, I think he was he's that one step even further removed, isn't he? Because he's not re- actually related to any of them other than by marriage. He he can just observe these sort of three generations of extremely strong-minded women, uh, kind of, uh, you know, making his life interesting, not boring, (laughs) but slightly complicated. (laughs) He was good fun. Okay.
0: Well, then we see that Tilly is now sent to uh, a new school by her mother, and now she has to try to fit in and and relate to other students, but it's a school that's getting her ready for the diplomatic core. And she doesn't want to go that path. So everybody's wanting to go a different path and be diplomats. And she wants to be more of a scientist or an engineer or something along those lines. And so she has a hard time. I I feel like she does a, a, a good job in a way of trying to fit in and get along with the other students, but not quite feeling like she belongs and she does form an engineering club, which seems fantastic because she's found a small group of her own. But then her mother kind of guilts her into dropping that club and, and leaving it. So I was wondering if you could talk about this point in her life in dealing with friends in school.
2: Oh, it's all just her best, isn't it? It's like she, whichever decision she makes, somebody will be unhappy. So, you know, uh, setting up the engineering club, uh, her mother doesn't like it because it's stealing time from other things dropping it her teachers are disappointed because they can see it's good for her and then also it takes her away from the set of people who probably would be her you know they'd be the people that she'd go and play settlers of Catan with or something you know <laughs> and, and instead she's she's ended up um, with a really nice set of people um but they're just not really very interested in the kinds of things she's interested in they're interested in different things and that's okay you know it's fine to be interested in different things but it's not fine if you're trying to make yourself pretend that that you're happy with that that you're you're doing things that you not really want to be doing so i think poor old tilly is just um she's she's caught between everyone's demands on on her isn't she she's trying to do things she's trying to fit in she's trying to make friends um and she's making mistakes and being pressured into decisions that aren't good uh and it all just gets too much for her she just goes right i've had it i'm off <laughs> i'm done mm-hmm. so it, it it doesn't all quite she doesn't quite pull everything together she's got this big presentation that she works far too hard at and then it doesn't go right on the day um her, her, her boating club you know it's not quite what her mother wants her to be doing because she's not really exercising but she's learning about teamwork and and captaincy in fact as well of course um but they come in second yeah so she doesn't quite come away with gold so she feels she's failed at everything. She hasn't really, you know, her, t- her teacher again is an externalist saying, this has actually been a great start. She's, you know, trying to do too much and maybe she should be doing more of the things that she likes, but it's it's actually been a great start. Um, but Tilly feels she's failed. And I think when you're at that age, failure feels almost um, like it's going to annihilate you because you're still quite fragile. Your your sense of self is still quite fragile. That if something goes wrong, you think it's the end of the world. And in fact, it's only... The, the secret of course being a, gr- a grown-up is that when things go wrong you still feel like it's the end of the world but you kind of pick yourself up a bit more quickly but Silly mm-hmm. hasn't had those experiences it's always been success um so failure or not quite doing as well as she would like is really devastating and that's why she sort of chooses to well to run away that's that's what she does next let's get out of here start again yeah. And
0: that's interesting because it really plays back to that very first part of the book where she's worried about the command training program. In a lot of ways, she's grown up, but she still has that worry of failing.
2: Mm-hmm. I think this is very common for high achievers. I, I taught for a long time at um, uh, a, a prestigious world-class university. And I sort of taught undergraduates there. And um, the feel of, fear of failure was very, very strong. They they never really failed. Um but also the sense of competition was very strong. They were, you were always surrounded, I think, by someone who is slightly smarter or, or doing slightly better or slightly more glamorous or, you know, all these kinds of things. And I think Tilly and many teenagers feel those kinds of pressures. Yeah, so it's a, it's a tricky old time for her.
0: Well, there was a comment earlier from uh, Arco in our Goodreads group, and Arco had another comment related to this, and was wondering if you did some research into behavior of highly intelligent children, and the way Tilly reacts to classmates, to homework assignments, and makes plans is very typical for children with a high IQ. Uh,
2: yeah I, i'm I'm one of these I'm one of these writers that that doesn't. Uh, doesn't set out to do research like that. I I just sort of, I'm I'm one of these writers who's always watching. Wherever I am, I'm just sort of observing human behavior. So I I guess um, I I wouldn't call it research, but I I have, because I taught at at this university, I've taught at university for a long time. um, I'm often around uh, uh, young people who are very anxious about grades, very anxious about doing well. Uh, very anxious about not getting things right. Um, so I've spent, uh, I, you know, I'm well into my forties now. I've been teaching in universities for over 20 years. I've, I've spent a lot of time around young people who are quite worried in that way, and I was one myself once upon a time. So, um, so that would be my research. Not, I didn't sort of set out to do it, but I've observed um quite a lot of this and I I taught students from lots of different backgrounds so uh I taught engineering students uh uh, for a long time taught them um, sociology for my sins um so I've sort of observed uh lots and lots of different types of kind of kids and the way that they uh the way that they learn or the the way that they cope with the stress of exams and school and and so forth and so on and and, and performing well so that's that's my research nothing sort of concrete but um just a long time around that kind of those kinds of people
0: you know this is very helpful for me because my daughter is 17 years old
2: Mm. uh
0: she'll be going to university in about a year and a half from now. So we're just going to those early phases of looking at schools and applying. And she's a straight A student, yet she worries constantly. She's Mm -hmm. constantly stressed. And I'm like, why are you worrying? She's like, oh, no school's going to take me. I'll never make it. I'm going to fail. And I'm like, you're a straight A student. Why would the school not want you? But it's like what you're saying. It's like they're not used to failing and they're just always trying to succeed that they're so afraid of failure that they get so stressed about it.
2: Yeah, and it's really, really hard. And it's sort of I, a couple of years ago, I decided I was, I was going to take up hobbies and be really bad at them um, because I thought it was a really good experience for me. So I took up sewing. I was terrible at it. I, it took me about three years to make a dress, and I, you know, it was really awful. But I just really, you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing something that that made me stop and think and have to go back to basic principles and think, okay, well, how do I switch this flipping machine on? I'm not very um, mechanical either. I'm not very, I'm very sort of spent a lot of time in my own head. So doing something that was quite physical and, you know, had to be quite dexterous with, uh, I thought it's really good for me. You know, I took up running as well. I'm terrible at it. I'm really slow and hopeless and uh, all these sorts of things, but it's quite a good experience to be bad at things because it sort of relaxes you. You don't feel like you need to be good. You can just spend your time in the moment but it's so tough for these kids you know this oh you've got to work you've got to work hard you've got to work hard you've got to work hard it's really exhausting i i wouldn't like to be a teenager now i think really tiring mm-hmm. yes
1: one thing i noticed with tilly is her you know laser-like focus when she's you know on something so her big final project for example you know she's just focused on that to mm-hmm. the extent the uh, the detriment of everything else in her life pretty much and then even when she runs away you know she's not really seeing the ripple effects that this is having it's just you know her and her mother and you know she's very focused on that sort of thing and you know i i found that to be very it makes a lot of sense like seeing people like that and especially young people mm-hmm. how they don't tend to look at the bigger picture and realize that you know on one side you know these smaller things might not be the end of the world but at the same time also not realizing the effect that their actions might have on the rest of the world i thought that was a really interesting aspect
2: oh good yeah you're completely right about her laser her laser focus and and of course this is what makes her so good um this is what makes her, her that, that that absolute attention and being able to sort of um absorb yourself in a problem or an idea to get to really sort of Deep understanding of it is 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 you know what makes her brilliant, uh, and um, but yes, it, it means that she forgets things around it. It's, it's it's really sad as you watch her working on that project and see how what a bad effect it's having on her relationship with her roommates. And uh, hopefully, when you're reading it, you you as the reader are going, "Oh, Tilly, stop it! You know you're gonna mm-hmm. she's gonna move out. She's not gonna take this. You're being really unkind." It's the bit where she kind of. Um, moves all her stuff onto one side of the room, you know, kind of shoves the mess and and, and then her, her roommate moves out. And you think, oh no, I'm writing it going, oh Tilly, I wish I could just sort of intervene and stop you. Well, I, I could, of course, I'm the writer, but <laughs> I won't, I've got, you know, I've got another uh, 50,000 words of book to write. Um, so yes, she's uh, the, the the focus sort of drifts. And I think smart people do this sometimes, you know, it, maybe it's a joke about absent-minded professors or something, but I think you do... <laughs> Really, really focus. I know my 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 other half and I uh, uh, often go. We probably ought to have something to eat round about this point, oughtn't we? Because <laughs> you know, we've both been absorbed in what we're doing, and um, you know, forget forget how late it's got or or how busy we've been, and you know, there are other things to do. So yeah, it 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 it's what makes her gifted and talented, but it, it's not always to her benefit, and she needs this group of people around her to go. Mm-hmm have a cup of tea or, uh, you know, go and have a sandwich You know, or maybe you should take a little break now, Tilly. Uh, and I think this is what, um, what she has to learn to do to take care of herself and to sort of um, be part of a team is that is, is one of the big things she has to learn.
1: Yeah, that was a tough part to read because I, at various points in my life, I've kind of been on both sides of that where I treated a roommate kind of like that. And then I, had somebody who was on you know even higher level than me and treated me like that and i was like oh i yeah. see now <laughs> oh that was brutal oh
2: yeah it was quite hard to write those bits yeah <laughs> it's so painful i think it's uh, those are what it's funny isn't it it's like uh it, it's like noisy neighbors or something it is isn't it that's <laughs> sort of um, the, the people that you wouldn't necessarily spend much time with and yet they have this huge impact on your life and, and noise intervention, those kinds of things, they can really wind you up. You know, they really uh, mm-hmm. it's like something's tick, tick, ticking away. So, oh, good. I, I'm, I'm glad I threw up all those horrible memories. <laughs> <laughs> that that <worked. laughs> good. So, uh,
0: you know, it, it's funny too, because I think about that whole relationship with her roommate and the other students mm-hmm. to the point now that she has run away and as a runaway in the experiences that she went through, it seemed as that was the opportunity for her to, as you say, fail, but also to succeed and really discover what she is and who she is and what she is meant to do. I mean, I mm-hmm. loved seeing that growth from school to being a runaway. I don't encourage children or adults even to run away, but it mm-hmm. was a good lesson for her.
2: It really is. And of course, in, in a book, you could sort of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the, uh, uh, what a book or a story is doing is, is saying, well, well, you know, the emotional journey that you have to make is, is a break. And in the story, we do this through the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the metaphor of, a, of being a runaway. So yes, she, she has, she sort of, um, yes, yeah, she genuinely has to do, she genuinely has to look after herself. I think uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is, is of course that her mother is so high powered that, that immediately there's a, there's a massive security alert and she sort of, trying to dodge this whilst at the same time um, on some level knows that all she has to do is effectively pick up the phone and say, could somebody come and pick me up, please? So she knows there's a backdrop there and that's part of what's frustrating her she makes some terrible mistakes straight away. You know, she, she gets her bag pinched and her ID and all her money and everything. So she, she's really sort of, she has to make, she has to make a choice though. Okay. Well, like, will I now just hit the panic button or will I try and press through here? And on the whole, I think she, she acquits herself pretty well. She sort of gets by and, um, by the time she does go back home, um, or where she's found, she's sort of she's found herself a job. She's done pretty well. Uh, she's uh, you know uh, started to make a friend. Haven't they arranged to uh, meet for a drink or something? So she's sort of she's really sort of finding a way. She's she's actually done pretty well, but then of course reality bites, and uh, you know a, a child of somebody that high powered. Couldn't remain a runaway that long because they're a security risk. Um, so if somebody found her, then you know it would be trouble. So the federation were always going to get her back. Um, but she she's done all right. You know she she from that she can sort of take away. Well, actually, uh, I I probably could do this. You know I, I I won't leave my bags unattended again. um You know I won't make stupid mistakes like that. But um I've done all right. I've done okay. Uh, so it's, it's it's really really important for it. It's a really good. Um, good experience for her if a bit scary i love
1: the kind of cast of characters she meets on this kind of (laughs) journey of hers um and you know finds herself in i think fairly real danger a few times maybe not even realizing how close she was but at the same time kind of cultivating these strange allies that you wouldn't expect along the way just through the force of her personality and uh, the kind of person she is
2: Yeah, and and because uh, like we have said, we all find her a really appealing person, and I think that people meeting her would would find her appealing as well as irritating, and you know (laughs) uh, needs to Mm -hmm. shut up, all the all these sorts of things, so that you know everybody finds that thing. I think what I sort of wanted in the book is is I wanted her to be presented with a series of sort of uh, mentors or potential role models, and she could she could sort of that happens as you go through life. I think you meet people. And they don't necessarily say to you, ah, oh, young Paduan, now I shall be your mentor. But you you sort of have encounters with people, and you go, Well, actually you were I found you really admirable or um you really helped me or um uh you look like the sort of grown up I would like to be. And I wanted her to meet a set of people like that. Uh and um you know, and then, and then, you know, also as you're growing up, you meet people who are just, just awful or not particularly interested or invested in you. So she meets a few like that as well. But I did want her to, to sort of meet, yeah, kind of a, a set of people who would provide her with insight to a world beyond that relationship with her mother. That there are there are different ways of living in the world and there are different kinds of relationships she can have. Um, and hopefully they're quite good fun people as well. So, uh, they, they, I, I liked Salah. She was good fun to write, mm-hmm. uh, the ship's engineer. So, so she was nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that was sort of my idea that, that she would meet a set of people who would give her a different view on the world and, and a different way of leading her life.
0: One thing I thought was a little interesting and a little strange at the same time is <laughs> Sylvia Tilley, decides that she wants to be called by her last name of Tilly, which is such an appropriate name for this character. Mm-hmm. But it's not just from her friends and, and the people she meets, but then she insists that her family call her Tilly, which has got to be awkward to call someone in your family by the same last name you have. And I was just wondering, why, what, what was the thought behind that? Is that her announcing her independence and trying to show her family that she is different and she's not the same person she was before?
2: Yeah, I think she sort of, I think it pops out or or it sort of pops out of her mouth uh, while she's at school. Uh, And um, I think she sort of, maybe there are lots of pet names that she's had. So she started to associate her name with being a child. Um, So she said, well, call me this. And then once she's kind of, said, I want this. She's got to kind of, kind of stick to it, I think. (laughs) So, and and her dad goes, all right, well, we'll do that if you like, but you know, if we could if in general, we could assume that when the captain asks for Tilly, it's for me, that would be helpful. <laughs> it's not always the case, of course, you know. So, And um, I like how
0: he calls her Tills after a while. Tils,
2: yeah, because he, he's sort of going, I think he knows that it's kind of daft. So he, he finds a way to a <laughs> nickname as well. But I think she was sick of things like Sills or Silly or Silly Billy or these kinds of things. Um, so she sort of asserts her own name uh, and then kind of has to follow through. Uh, in a way, but yeah, her, da- her dad finds a way around it, um, and her mum sort of tries to, you know, uh, kind of force her way through it. And of course, that that doesn't work; that backfires. Um, mm-hmm. But she has to, she has to find a different way through. I think,
1: yeah, that part actually really resonated for me. Um, it' not quite to the same extent as, you know, going by your last name or whatever. But I remember when I was in high school. I became a ski instructor, and I'd always gone by Daniel my entire life up to that point. And they were doing the name tag for my ski instructor jacket, and they said, "Oh, what do you want on there, Dan Daniel?" And I was like, "Dan." And I was just Dan for the rest of my life from then po- that wow. point on. Because, and it really felt like Daniel was the kid's name, and I'm like, "No, I'm Dan now," you know. And it just so that really clicked with me. I was like, "I get that. That's really cool."
2: Good, good. So that really happens, I think. Yeah, my, my other half sort of he he would he would sort of introduce himself as Matthew, and then immediately people would just shorten it to Matt, and I think. Why I just kind of go to why why do people do this? It's not your name. I don't know. They just do it. So, um, so I think you yeah you really have to it it really matters uh, choosing um, the name that you want and having people respect that as well. I mean I just spend my life getting Uma Una Una. You know it's just it's never right. So uh, um, yeah, but it matters. It matters that people paid attention and have, have listened when you said this is my name. This is, this is who I am. So good, good. I've got that worked. Good.
0: Yeah, I kind of go through a similar thing where I am called by my middle name. That was something my parents decided since the day I was born. So I'm always having to correct people when they see my name written down. And it's not Richard. I go by Bruce, which is my yeah. middle name. And what's really funny is when I was 12 years old, my friends called me Brucey Baby for a couple of years and that went away. And now 40 years later, my boss all of a sudden started calling me Brucie baby. So names sometimes are recycled and come back.
2: <laughs> I'm Yeah.
0: But yeah, I want to stay on the subject of names, but get off the topic of this book. Um, I've really enjoyed how uh number one in the novels has <laughs> been called Una.
2: I think you, do you appreciate
0: that too? <laughs>
2: uh, I Obviously, I see myself in a in a much more of an admiral's role, or perhaps you know, federation <laughs> presidents, But uh, but I will accept that. It's <laughs> <as> tricky. <tribute.
0: laughs> well, we're waiting to see if we get a name for number one in the uh, Discovery series. At the time of this recording, we haven't gotten that yet. So well, maybe it it's know, Maybe it's something it else. Be or maybe Una. we don't know. <laughs> I, that's what I say mm-hmm. too. Absolutely. <laughs> now we see tilly get exposed to starfleet Mm -hmm. as she's on the uh starship dorothy Garrett with her father Mm -hmm. and she starts to look at starfleet and we're seeing it through tilly's eyes as she's discovering things about starfleet and starts to recognize that this is something that she might fit well into and of Mm -hmm. course we know she eventually does join starfleet so tell us about that aspect of her character so
2: the the idea that we had was that we, sort of she was very suspicious of Starfleet because it had um, taken her taken her father away. He'd kind of gone off for this long mission, uh, and so she she just thought of it as something that um, you, you know took her took her father away. You know, uh, she didn't have much time for it, so maybe she had a perception of it as you know all uniforms and salutes and this kind of thing I thought it was all a bit weird um probably her mother is maybe saying oh you know starfleet's because they've annoyed her at some council session or something so she doesn't have a a, a great view of it i think it's really interesting because we really all we see of the federation through the tv shows is through the eyes of starfleet um but but ordinary people you know unless you had a family member uh you you might not necessarily know very much about them if you're just an ordinary person Um, living in the Federation. Uh, You you know, you don't necessarily on a daily basis um, uh, know someone in the military or know somebody who's an explorer or these kinds of things. Um, So so her only perception of it is through uh, the organization that has persuaded her dad to go away for two years, basically. So she's not very, very fond of them. So when she winds up on the ship, uh, what what she finds is that I think in the book she sort of starts to think of it as a giant science high uh, high school science club she's on a ship with a lot of kind of um, uh, sort of archaeologists and um, uh, social scientists and uh, a, a band of engineers that she starts working with uh, and so they're quite um, they're quite uh, uh, open-minded, they're interested in new ideas. I, uh, I have them sort of run regular research seminars. So she finds a kind of bunch of curious, open-minded, intelligent people who are not all sort of saluting and, you know, uh, clicking their boot heels together and this kind of thing. So I think she sees a, a, an aspect of Starfleet that's, a, that's exactly up her street something that would give her a kind of framework to be able to do the kind of research that she wants. And then on top of that, she she sort of gets involved in the, the front line of something that, that makes her see how it does make a difference. Uh, that her dad isn't just poking around with ruins, that um, being out there in these ships can uh, bring them into first contact situations. So they've, they'll suddenly go from being academics into sort of people involved in the front line of, of, of diplomacy. Um, so it, it's all a very interesting experience for her. Uh, and she sees very different aspects of Starfleet as a result of being on the ship.
0: Yeah, and the ship that she's on is the Dorothy Garrett, which we mentioned. And, and she was an English archaeologist, and this is a science vessel. So I can see that also, since her father is... An archaeologist type, yeah, yeah,
2: exactly that. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was. She was one of these great. I, I think she's one of the um. Per, she's one of the first women to um, hold a professorial chair uh, at a university in Britain. Uh, I think she was. I think she might have been the first woman to hold a chair at Cambridge. Actually, before women could actually get degrees at Cambridge, so she's a pretty amazing woman. She kind of goes off on them. Um, you know, on digs in the twenties and thirties. Uh, so I thought, well, I want to, I don't want to science special. They're not, they're not kind of biochemists or, um, uh, you know, that, that they're not sort of engineers. they are archeologists and people interested in language and linguistics. So let's pick someone like that. Uh, and, um, she was also at my college, my Cambridge college, which is Newnham college. So I like, I like to sort of name things after, um, uh female scientists and uh, uh and she seemed a natural choice. So yeah, she's on the Dorothy Garrett, which does sound like David Gerald, so I know that <laughs> 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 yeah, but it's Dorothy Garrett. So uh, so that's that's why I picked it and, and so it's a slightly different uh uh type of science that she's seeing or type of sort of curiosity that she's seeing. It's not her um, you know, mathsy, engineering y uh, physicsy interests, but she's seeing that kind of curiosity and enthusiasm. Uh, for people who are experts in their field
1: as a little aside with the dorothy garrett too i really liked uh the t-shirts that they wore you know on the discovery <laughs> we have the disco but for this vessel it's the dotty which i thought that was brilliant
2: <laughs> Thank you. that's one of those things that you're just sitting there and you write it down you go god i'm good <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely
2: well i had a I had a Good chuckle with that. Good. I, I just had a lot of fun with that. So it just pops out. So you go, yes, that's perfect. I'm having that.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that brought a smile to my face because Good. people always wonder, you know, what does the Enterprises say? I mean, it could say the big E for all, you know, <laughs> like it's just the exactly. nickname. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, speaking of uh, of amazing women, I really love the captain of the Dorothy Garrod, mm-hmm. uh, this Aussie captain, Yindi Holden. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the inspiration for her and and how that character came about because I I think she's a lot of fun I really liked her.
2: Good, good. I'm really glad about that. Well, um, I uh I have a fantastic PhD student and she's uh, Indigenous Australian and a, a lot of what we talk about is about um, issues of representation in in fiction and television and science fiction and fantasy in particular, which are, are things that we're both interested in, um, and how. Uh, Uh, miserable it can be just to uh be reading a book there's never anyone who's a little bit like you you're you're always not quite um involved uh so i thought okay right i I need a captain for this ship why don't i make this captain indigenous australian so let's let's have the first indigenous australian um uh starfleet captain uh and there she is so uh and um I, I just really like Australian people I find them very frank I find them very funny uh it's good massive generalisations of course but uh, I'm, sure there, I'm sure there are many dreadful Australian people as well <laughs> but um, i I feel them really open there's no uh you know British people can be a bit reserved or a bit you know uh there's, there's no there's no nonsense uh uh very energetic um uh very can do so I wanted to capture that sort of aspect uh, of australian um culture and society which i find very admirable uh and 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 yindi's like that she's sort of you know she's she's very can do she's got a lot of energy uh she's uh very smart she's very good at what she does um but she's also a very good captain she's got her eye on you know um how tilly's presence is going to affect ian's work so she sort of cooks up an arrangement for that so she's very sharp on the kind of uh uh, uh Psychodynamics or, or of her crew as well, so she's keeping an eye on that aspect. Um, and again, I thought it would be a—it's a, another one of these role models that Tilly gets to see. She's sort of this is not what she imagined a Starfleet captain would be like. Somebody very energetic and can do quite young as well. Um, and also a great, uh, you know, really good in her field. So, uh, you know, in her, in, in her old field, GD sort of publishes and is very well respected. Uh, so, it, again, it's a kind of um, mentor or role model. And I love the bits where it turns out that that Yindi's been in contact with uh, her grandmother. You know, they've they've immediately got on like a house on fire because, you know, they're very kind of frank women who are sort of very confident and and just get on with things. So uh, I I like this idea that people sort of make connections because they feel they have a duty of care and kindness to uh, someone who's in their charge. Uh, So uh, I liked that friendship and I'm very fond of Yindi. I hope we can see her again. It'd be lovely if we could.
0: Yeah, you can make that happen, maybe, in another book. (laughs) I'd like to. Yeah,
2: she's there now. That's the main thing.
0: Yeah. Well, also, uh, poor communication seems to be at the heart of Tilly's problems with her parents and those around her. And her mother never really listens to what Tilly wants. And Tilly is now under the impression that she made her father leave when she doesn't talk to him about the issue at the very end of the novel. And I mean, I think this is something that kids carry a lot of burden on themselves, thinking they've caused problems with their parents or other people. And uh, I I felt bad for Tilly for waiting for such a long time to express this feeling that she had and, and the thoughts that she had about breaking up her parents and carrying on that burden that was her fault when it really wasn't
2: oh no absolutely not her fault no but she's sort of so young when it's happening and you're absolutely right I think kids just go well was it was it something I did and when you're very little I think you um uh it uh, just as part of your psychological developments you you think that things you do have a much bigger effect than 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 actually they do so of course she's not the reason why her her parents split up and and Ian sort of explains that very carefully to her in the end um but of course she's small enough that she um she's she's so small she's so young that she comes to that conclusion and never really voices it, never really shakes it and I think that probably contributes to a lot of her sort of uncertainty about herself and her need both her need to placate both parents to keep them happy so another reason why she takes a long time to say no to her mother i think uh yes yeah, so it's it's really tough she's sort of very little when they split and takes it on herself and 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 doesn't really realize until she's much older well actually no that isn't of course that isn't what happened um but but if you've learned it very young you 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 sort of take it as bedrock don't you it becomes part of foundational of your personality i think yeah so poor tilly it's sort of you know and ian feels awful when he when he sort of realizes i think oh my you know never realized she sort of thought that of course not and um, and then explains very clearly how it wasn't and never was her fault so uh, yeah good i'm glad that touched it it really should do and
1: i love how it took until adulthood for that to be resolved too because you know a lot of people tend to you know separate young people from adults and you, there's just this magical line you cross when all those uh all those misgivings and all those missteps yeah. just You know, oh, you're an adult now, now it's fine. But those really carry through. And I love that Burnham is the one to kind of give her a push and say, Are you sure that's what happened? Maybe you should ask him. Yeah.
2: I think That's very that. perceptive. Good. Thank you. Uh, yes, I think that's something you and, and actually what happens with adults is that you still have all these sort of anxieties and hangouts, but you, you just get to be too tired to, to sort of <laughs> angst about them anymore, I think. Um, yeah. So, and, and I think someone like Burnham, who's a completely external eye and has only known Tilly as an adult, uh, it has the kind of authority to say, you should think about this again. And I'm telling you as as a friend and as an adult friend, of, you know, two grown-ups to each other. It's not doesn't sound to me that that's what it was. That sounds like the child that you were saying something. So yeah, but Burnham's not in the book very much, but it's quite a pivotal conversation, I think.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, I can speak for Dan and say that we both really loved this book. When Definitely. is it right that I say that, Dan? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. This was actually,
1: I, I have to say, my fiance, who's never read a Star Trek novel heard me talking about this and wants to pick it up because she loves Tilly and uh, she heard me raving about it.
2: So It might be
1: somebody's first Star Trek novel. (laughs)
2: That would be incredible. That's wonderful. I I really like the idea that that someone could pick up this book and think, oh, that's just a really good story about a a girl coming of age and, and growing up to be a woman. Also, it's got spaceships, which are cool. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I, I, it'd be great if she enjoyed it. Of course, she loves Tilly. Who could not love Tilly? Everybody loves Tilly. So uh,
0: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's been times at the dinner table, I was talking about the book as I was reading through it, and my daughters were asking me all these questions. Yeah, well, what did she do, Dad? And what you know, because they could relate to her. And I thought maybe this is the one book I fi- finally can get them to read—that's Star Trek.
2: <laughs> oh, I'll try it on them. That would that would be perfect because you said she's your one of your daughters is seventeen as well, so she's sort of the same yes. age, isn't she? Yeah. So yeah, who knows? She might enjoy it. So uh, yeah, it'd be that'd be wonderful. I'd I'd love to think that. I, I I'm really I'm really pleased to think that this is a a sort of um story of a of a, a girl growing to growing to become a woman, masquerading as a Star Trek book. <laughs> I kind of really enjoy that <laughs> idea. But it's also a Star Trek book as well, I hope, very much. It's about you know, uh, feeling curious and adventurous and, uh, and, and wanting to be in space and do all those sort of exciting, cool things that we all wanted to do and see when we were watching Star Trek when we were kids. So uh, I hope it feels Star trek as well as uh, being a, a, a coming-of-age story.
1: Also, I, I could be wrong, but I think it might be the first Star Trek novel with a Harry Potter reference in it. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Which was brilliant. I, I told my daughter that. about that and she freaked out.
2: <laughs> was that the School for Wizards bit? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, Yeah. where
1: she was talking it about
2: boarding be, uh, schools. It could be, you know, it could be. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't get me sued. <laughs> it's not direct, but, you know, it could be. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so Exactly that. It'd be, it'd be nice to think both Harry Potter and Earthsea survive that long, I think. That'd be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That would be
1: Absolutely. Cool. <laughs> that was the coolest aspect to me. It was, I was like, ooh, somebody in the 23rd century could be reading, you know, the Philosopher's Stone. That's amazing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, no reason why not. No reason. There's probably somebody doing their PhD on it. <laughs> on, oh, totally. On a starship yeah. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> probably.
0: Well, and I mentioned the Goodreads group. Uh, Daniel and our group did have one question I wanted to end the uh, interview and the discussion with. Uh, He said that before you became a publisher of Star Trek, what other Star Trek novels most influenced you? And if you were on a stranger on a deserted island, what three books would you take?
2: Right. Okay. well, uh, uh, obviously, I was I was very influenced by um, Andrew Robinson's uh, Stitch in Time. Uh, because I've, as your listeners may know, I've written a lot of sort of Cardassian books, so that's a, that's extremely well thumbed. Uh, so probably that one. Uh, I think, um, and I, I'm blanking on which uh, one it is now. Uh, one of Vonda McIntyre's uh, novelizations uh, and of of the movies. Um, because uh, I, I loved movie novelizations because I, I think those were the books, things, uh, other novelizations, sort of E.T. and War Games. I think they taught me that there were scenes happening that I hadn't seen on screen and therefore made me a fan fiction writer that turned into this career. Um, and I loved the uh, next-gen paperbacks as they were coming out, the books by Jean Laura. Uh, that I really, really enjoyed. So I, I was kind of reading them as a, as a teenager as they were coming out. So those would be the Star Trek ones. Uh, books I would take with me on a desert island. Um, Lord of the Rings, obviously, although I, I have got that memorised, so probably I'd <laughs> need, need to take it. Uh, a three, am I allowed three? Three books? Mm-hmm. Three yeah, books? Okay, I'd take that. I would take, um, oh, I'd have to take some Ursula Le Guin uh I'll, let me have a little think about which one um well that's tricky uh probably always coming home and then I would take T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets so that that mm. would be my three books very cool yeah it's not bad <laughs> is it <laughs> I d- that sounds really nice actually if you could arrange for that that would be lovely <laughs> it does sound nice doesn't it <laughs> very, very peaceful yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> well when you're not on a deserted island where can people find you online and do you have uh, any projects coming up too
2: oh yes what am i doing do you, do you, well i'm doing lots of things uh i don't think any of them have been announced yet so uh i can't um i can't mention them but i i feel like i've i'm i'm literally working all the time <laughs> uh mm-hmm. the, the big thing i'm working on at the moment actually is a, a collection of essays there's a science fiction writer called um lois mcmaster bujold uh she writes brilliant sort of military science fiction with a twist and some great fantasy novels as well and uh i've been editing a collection of essays about her so that that's the thing i'm really 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 focused on at the moment because the manuscript's due in a few weeks <laughs> we're all sort of we've had two years to do it. be going oh yeah we've got ages and then all of a sudden you've got two minutes it's like all these projects um no it's actually really exciting We'll get all the essays in um but other stuff i think hasn't been announced oh yes i have a i have a novella coming out in may which is uh in a universe all of my own so uh that's called the undefeated that's been published by tour.com um and that was lovely because uh, I, I pitched it to an editor called marco palmieri who people might remember mm. was the the editor of the star trek books a long time ago so it was marco and i got to work again on on this it's all it's very exciting so that's finally coming out and uh I've just had a Doctor Who novel out as well. So if people are interested in Doctor Who, the eleventh eleventh, 13th Doctor, uh that's uh that's called Molten Heart, and that just came out. So it's been quite a busy year uh and, and lots of more things to come as well. And if people want to find me, I'm on Twitter and my uh disguise there is not a very good one. I am at Una McCormack. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm writing that down. So I don't forget. Yeah. Yeah. So it it just let me mind very easily. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, I mean, we love Tilly. We love this book. And uh, Mm -hmm. I don't want to take any more of your time because I want you to get back to writing
2: because we were the (laughs) next thing.
0: yes absolutely
2: yeah yeah thanks for writing that's all i do that's all i do <laughs> but, but yes i i uh i'm not i'm not working on novel at the moment no i'm not working on novel at the moment but um i usually am uh and yeah it'll be fun when they yeah let's see what the next thing is Um hopefully it's good fun i'm sure awesome well, we can't wait yeah. <laughs>
1: I always love talking with Una McCormick, her insights into, you know, writing these novels and stuff. And with Una, it's usually a story about Cardassia and Cardassians and that sort of thing. So it was kind of nice to be able to switch gears and do a really different type of novel with her. And I think you and I are both on the same page here. We loved this novel. So what a fun
0: discussion. That was really cool. Yeah, I found it a bit refreshing going into this because I love Una's work, but you're right. A lot of it has been centered lately on Cardassians. And so this seems so different for her when we're focusing on a character like Tilly. Uh, this is no way is connected to Cardassians. And so this isn't as uh, big of an epic society look at Cardassians. It's it's about this character and her her growing pains basically. And it was a very nice, pleasant, fun, enjoyable read. And I, I, yeah, I can't, if anybody likes discovery and if anybody certainly likes Tilly, this is a must read. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Um,
1: Una's ability to just really dig into the meat of the character and find out what makes her tick. I, I, reading this book has really given me a lot more insight into Tilly and watching her in season two of discovery, having that knowledge from the book just adds that much more to the character. So I think that's the
0: best thing to come out of this book for sure. Absolutely. And there's one thing I forgot to ask Una because mm-hmm. in the book, it mentions on the Dorothy Garrett that there is a hollow deck. Yes. Hmm. I just kind of wanted to hear what she said to that. Cause we kind of saw something like holographic deck type situation on discovery. Um, yeah.
1: Which, which we know exists at this time, you know, from the animated yeah. series or shortly after this time. But I don't think we've ever seen like interacting with solid matter or anything like that. So you know, I don't know. Or I feel even like hear this-
0: it referred to
1: as a hollow deck. Even. Yeah, the, the terminology was a little bit, hmm. But uh, yeah, I'd be mm-hmm. curious to see about that. I, I forgot to ask about that as well.
0: Yes. Well, it's fun talking about holodecks in the 23rd century, but this isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Meta Treks.
1: Wow, I had no idea that was possible. It's this ongoing link. That exists between Michael Burnham and Sarek because of this mind meld that he had with her when she was a child. Mike, I'm going to give you a Radio Shack joke because I know you and I both have Radio Shack experience. If this, yes. were the, if this episode happened in the 1990s,
0: they would have had prepaid long distance mind meld cards. To the journey!
2: But I do have a question. Why was Neelix focusing on classic American cuisine as a marketable job skill? in going back to the Alpha Quadrant. Why classic American cuisine? Why not Chinese, Japanese, or Vulcan? Come on.
1: I think that the culinary tastes will continue to degrade for the next three or four centuries. And by the 24th century, it'll only be classic American that's left. You know, all other cuisine will have gone by the wayside. So
2: pot roast, pot pie, apple pie.
1: Yeah, every restaurant is Taco Bell, essentially. You know, it's it's the
0: demolition man problem.
2: That's
0: disgusting. Literary Treks.
1: I think we could not do this novel without inviting a special guest, Amy Nelson. Amy, how are you doing?
0: Hi, I am so excited. Emzadi Riker, Troy, it is the best. I am so grateful, honored, pleased that you even thought of me for coming on Literary Treks. So thank <laughs> you so, so much. Yeah, we're like... Do you think there's anybody on the network that would like to talk about Deanna Troy? Hmm. Hmm. I think I have Hmm. corner on the market on that one. Standard Orbit. (coughs) Vulcans are not incapable of showing emotion, but apparently they are incapable of lying. That's
1: that's their reputation. I mean, who told you Vulcans tell you that, of course they would. I mean, that's their (laughs) reputation,
0: you know. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an
1: Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And we'd love it if you'd leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to
0: help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron on the network through Patreon. Join patreon.com trekfm. That's patreo dot com slash trekfm. And you'll get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. So we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm.
1: We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is in the Babel conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel that's B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. And as you heard earlier in the show, we'd love to share your comments from the Babel conference here on the episode as well. And uh, if you've got a picture of yourself in a dotty t-shirt, we'd love to see that too. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select literary treks and that'll come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com
0: slash trek.fm. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what is coming up for future shows. Plus, there's great conversations happening about the books and comics. We had a conversation about "The Way to the Stars," and some of those comments and questions we just asked to Uno McCormick in the future. So just search for literary tracks on Goodreads and click "Join Group." And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandis Mutala, Justin Ozer and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, where you're not running away from school and all those people you thought were your friends. So you can just go and discover yourself. Where can people find you? Well, luckily I'm not the Son of
1: a high-up federation diplomat, so you know I might be able to get a little further than Tilly did, but when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter, I'm at Kertrats. that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on youtube.com slash Productions, where I make videos about Star Trek, mostly these days about new episodes of Star Trek Discovery. And of course you can find me in the Babel Conference and on Facebook.com slash Productions. Now, Bruce, when you're not organizing games of Settlers of Catan with
0: your engineering club, where can we find you? Well, you can find me in the chess club if I'm not in the engineering club. And you can also find me online on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me here on the network doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jacola or Jacula, whatever she wants to pronounce it as. Which I also Yakula learned. Yakula yeah that's the correct pronunciation people Yakula just telling you she confirmed that on the show live from the edge we talk about Star Trek Discovery the night after premieres it's live on YouTube and so it's Friday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern 6 p.m. Pacific and I also talk Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast and of course I'm always in the Babel Conference so thanks everyone for listening and until next time live long And read on,
2: on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.